This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Downey. Our guest this week is Kentucky 1st District Representative James Comer. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. Syngenta Products and Services, helping farmers increase their return on investment. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Congressman James Comer next. Commodity prices remain under pressure. That's why now, more than ever, farmers are focused on their return on investment. More and more, farmers depend on Syngenta products and services designed to increase their ROI. See the Syngenta Seed Innovations, made for better ROI. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Kentucky 1st District Representative James Comer is one of only a handful of members of the 116th Congress that still actively farms. As a conservative Republican and member of the House Agriculture Committee, Comer opposes the liberal Democratic agenda and fears well-intended policy could be to the detriment of agriculture and rural America. I do think that there's going to have to be a lot of education in the immediate future on the agriculture and in Congress in general. Uh, we've said many times before, there just aren't very many members of Congress anymore with agriculture background. And when you're talking about this Green New Deal and you're talking about all these uh, progressive proposals that these far left-wing new members of Congress are trying to push, it's going to require a lot of education from those of us who do have agriculture backgrounds because I think most people support farmers and most people want to help family farmers. It's just when you don't have any idea of what family farming is all about, it's very hard to pass laws that will be beneficial to family farmers. So I'm going to do my best to try to meet individually with key members in both parties. We have people in the Republican Party that don't know anything about agriculture, too, to just make sure that they understand that this particular proposal they may be pushing may have unintended consequences on family farmers. You also come in now with the definition of what's a family farm because some have the picture of the American Gothic when the actual American family farm today that has survived the rule of economics of scale, some would call it a factory farm when in, in reality they're just big enough to survive. The vision of a lot of these urban and suburban members that have just gotten elected is a family farm supposed to be on about 10 acres with two chickens running around in the front yard and a pig uh, running free in the backyard and, and a milk cow. And that's obviously not the, not the uh, modern family farm. So the term factory farmer has somehow been in, ingrained in a lot of these people's minds, and I'm just going to do everything I can to explain to them what a family farm must consist of for survival and the the perfect example in Kentucky are the poultry farms and and all the uh, poultry processing facilities are in my congressional district in Kentucky the uh, the majority of the poultry farmers that I know are young and beginning farmers and these these people have to go the the poultry route because honestly it's the if you didn't inherit a farm, it's probably the only type of agriculture that has any chance of cash flowing out if you have to borrow the money to begin your farming operation. So uh, a lot of people in Washington would call that a factory farm, and it's not. It's a, it's a family farm. In fact, it's what we want to see. It's uh, The majority of these poultry farms are, are beginning and new farmers. They've done everything right. They were active in 4-H and FFA. They got a degree in agriculture. 
they go to church every Sunday. They 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 raise uh, good families, and and these are the type of people we need to support in Washington. So the big issue that is a moving target right now is the government shutdown, and the clock is ticking toward whether there'll be a compromise or not. And I think that centers down then to border security, and that centers down to immigration reform. Agriculture wants immigration reform and adequate workers. Can you have one without all of the rest? I think you can. When I talked to the president a while back, I said, that's the route you need to go. I said, Mr. President, you don't have the votes to build the wall. I'm for the wall. And I've voted for the wall at least twice and will continue to vote for the wall. And the wall is popular in my district. But do not have a majority of votes in the House and never have you had 60 votes in the Senate. So what we need to do is have a compromise. And that's good for agriculture, too, for family farmers, because there's a shortage of workers. There's a shortage of workers in every industry in America now. And unfortunately, because of welfare programs and the changing culture today, we don't have any prospect to fill in a lot of those jobs by Americans. And there, there's an opportunity to please every side here because, you know, I don't care what some of the most liberal members say about the wall. The overwhelming majority of Americans want border security. And the overwhelming majority of Americans realize that the drugs that are coming into the United States are coming through Mexico. And that needs to stop. But they also, I think, a majority of Americans, even on on the right, understand that there's a shortage of workers. And we can compromise on this issue and, and meet in the middle. And I, I think it's uh, been politicized by both parties, and that's unfortunate. Anytime you shut the government down, everybody loses. The taxpayers lose. The people that depend on those government services lose. The employees that are affected by the shutdown lose, everybody loses. And I don't want to see the government shut down again. But, you know, I stand with the president. We have to have border security. The drug issue in Kentucky, these drugs are coming from Mexico. There, There is no question. And I, I just hope that the president will make an offer that will bring both sides together. And I think the way to do it is with a pretty solid immigration plan that has guest workers and addresses the challenges that our universities have. You know, a lot of the universities in Kentucky depend on foreign students, and those foreign students pay full tuition, and they're model students, and they don't get into trouble. And, and that's a good deal for the Murray State Universities and the Universities of Kentucky and all that. So I, I think that something can, can be worked out, and I, I sure hope it does. There was talk of reviving the Goodlett bill, which wasn't able to find mm-hmm. much traction in the 115th. Are there lines or are there pieces of that that could survive in a vote today? I think so. I think that's a good compromise. I mean, that's that's perfect for agriculture. It's perfect for other industries that have a shortage of workers. It's compassionate. That's an issue that the, the Democrats always raise. It's compassionate because uh, if you're someone in another country and you're obviously living way below the poverty line and you want to work and, and provide for your family, you can come to the United States and, and get a good job and, and work temporarily. And while you're here, you can apply for citizenship. And and that's the deal that the president should try to offer to Pelosi. Look, there's a legal way for these people to become citizens. But we just can't let every person that wants come across that border. I mean, the, the, the children may not have vaccinations, and they could infect our children. They come into the school systems. They don't speak English. That's a burden on our school system. It, it 
attracts time and attention away from American taxpaying citizens' children because they're having to try to get these immigrant children caught up. It's a burden on our health care system. But there's a way to make this all work. You know, we need workers in the in the economy, and there's a legal process for guest workers to become citizens. So I, I think that it can all be worked out, and I sure hope it does. Congressman, we're inside that 90-day window right now uh, to resolve the trade war with China of the deadline that the president has proposed. Now, I realize that you're not in the room with the negotiations, but uh, from your constituents and from the industry that you're a part of in agriculture, do you sense the urgency to see this to a conclusion, and do you think we're closer? I hope we're closer, and there is a sense of urgency to get it done. There's just too much uncertainty now. The overall vital signs of the economy still good. I was on Fox and & Friends, and we talked about trade, and I said that uh, I think most Americans realize that something needed to be done about the unfair trade balance between the United States and China, but unfortunately... For farmers, we're on the front lines of that trade war, and we're optimistic and hopeful that the president can uh, get a good deal. But that really needs to happen soon because where we are in the price cycle for commodities, uh, it's imperative that we get a a trade deal, and and hopefully we didn't lose our good markets with China, especially in soybeans and, and tobacco. Iowa Senator Grassley admits he still doesn't like tariffs, but he also suggested that probably those tariffs help to bring about a quicker uh, compromise agreement between the U.S. and Mexico uh, with the new USMCA. There are many that are looking for ratification of that deal in the U.S. Congress. First, do you think the new leadership in the chamber will approve the deal as read, or will they insist on changes? And do you think we could see an approval of the USMCA with those tariffs on steel and aluminum still in place for our two neighbors? I hope that Congress will ratify it. I have my doubts, unfortunately, just because when you when you listen to Pelosi and the new majority leadership talk and complain, they want more environmental laws written in there. They want more labor laws written in there. And it's just right opposite of what, what we need. I was in a committee meeting, and they were talking about the need to double the minimum wage. And that's a bill that the Democrats are putting at the forefront of their agenda this session. And my argument was, we have finally got this economy growing. And I think it, that's happened over the last two years because of President Trump's policies. And the last Congress, we were focused on reducing regulations. We were focused on reducing taxes. Just this last month, we had 304,000 new jobs created in America. That's as good as it's ever been. And why now do you want to come in and start putting more regulations on? And the trade imbalance with China was significantly reduced last month. I mean, we've got the economy in good shape right now. But unfortunately, the thing that I think held us back in America were excessive regulations. And we've got a mindset in Congress now with with Pelosi as Speaker to where we need more regulations. And I I think that's unfortunate. And I I hope that, you know, they will realize that the economy's growing now. We're creating jobs. We're seeing wage inflation for the first time in a long time. Everybody agrees that, you know, working middle-class people need to see their wages rise. The wages are rising not because of policy, the rising because of basic supply and demand. The economy's growing. There's a shortage of workers, so wages are, are naturally going to go up. And I, I think that's the type of policy that 
will succeed in America, not the type of policy that Pelosi is, is trying to push with more laws, more regulation, and higher taxes. President Trump, in his State of the Union address, mentioned the Farm Bill as an example mm-hmm. of bipartisanship. Right. One area, 240 organizations offering a letter asking for a concentration on infrastructure, water, surface transportation, broadband, health care. Are there areas of compromise that both sides of the aisle could see uh, support for some sort of an infrastructure policy? I think we all want better infrastructure. We all travel a lot. We go through airports that are substandard. We drive on roads and bridges that are substandard. We go to areas, especially in my district, where we don't have broadband or wireless technology. Of course, in my district and for agriculture, our our locks and dams are in peril all along the the Ohio and and Mississippi rivers and, and in need of investment. So everyone recognizes that there's a demand for infrastructure. Where the problem lies is, first of all, how do you pay for it? Unfortunately, the deficit continues to increase. It increased under Republican leadership, and that was very disappointing to me. If we do everything Pelosi wants to do, it will increase even more under their leadership. And the second problem is the regulations that Pelosi and Ocasio-Cortez and all these new members are wanting, they want to make a green infrastructure deal. I don't know if concrete and blacktop is green. I'm going to assume it's not in their eyes. When you say green infrastructure, I think of, okay, instead of building 10 bridges, we're going to build six bridges now. So I feel like everyone is in a position where we recognize we need to invest in America's crumbling infrastructure. Uh, But the two big problems are, one, how do we pay for it? And two, are we going to do it in the in the best manner for the taxpayers, or are we going to try to put these crazy green regulations on it that inflate the costs and probably create a an inferior end product? Congressman, on this program last year, we had Senate Agriculture Chair Pat Robertson, also who is current now chair of the House Agriculture Committee, Colin Peterson, both admitted that most likely in this one sixteenth that climate change would come before their committee. Well, Mm -hmm. over the past week, we had the first hearing on climate change in the House of Representatives, and uh, Chairman Peterson said he didn't see a need for it now and and wasn't going to advance that mark. Yet there is and has been uh, introduced the Green New Deal that certainly would bring back memories of what cap-and-trade looked like, uh, challenges for agriculture and, and challenges in the way that energy is produced. How do you see proposals like this? I was looking at the bullet points of the Green New Deal, and you know, their goal was to replace every building in America. Uh, their goal is to somehow try to address the problem of uh, cows passing gas. And I'm thinking, my goodness, what, how did these people get elected to Congress? You know, so I, I just do not think it has any chance of passing the Senate or the House, to be honest with you, because you're talking about trying to do things that aren't possible. We're not we're going to tear down the U.S. Capitol because this is an old building where I am right now. It's real old. <laughs> I'm sure it's not energy efficient in their new green vision of, of America. What we have to do is have some common sense. Uh, I believe that we do need to protect and preserve the environment. I do think that there are bad actors in industry that contribute to 
damage of the climate. That needs to be addressed. I want to have clean drinking water. I want my children to have clean drinking water. These are things I think we can agree on. Would I be out of line to suggest the Green New Deal is like cap-and-trade deja vu? Yes, only worse, because cap-and-trade was limited to pretty much the energy industry. You know, it, it, it was it affected a lot of industries. This Green New Deal is everything. It's just not practical. The price tag on the Green New Deal would make cap and trade look like it was on the clearance rack at a Goodwill store in Kentucky. You know, I mean, it's just, it's not practical. West Virginia Representative uh, Dave McKinley is quoted saying, if anyone thinks that decarbonizing America is going to save the planet, they're delusional. I agree. We have a strong energy industry in America now. You know, agriculture's played a role in that, obviously, with ethanol and, and biodiesel and coal. So I feel like we're in a position to where things are working from an energy standpoint. Just like I feel like the economy's growing and jobs are being created and, and wages are, are going up for the first time in, in a decade. And I just hate to see Pelosi and her new regime come in and try to change that. Let's, let's just get out of the way of the private sector. What, what's held the private sector back is too much government control, too much government intervention. We've tried to, to get the government off the backs of the private sector, and I feel like we're seeing success with that. And, and it's just discouraging to see all these new proposals that they have that, in my opinion, will stagnate growth again and hurt us from a trade standpoint and hurt us from a, just an overall competitiveness standpoint. How do you see the evaluation process here of the EPA now under the direction of Andrew Wheeler with regard to uh, the implementation of a new WOTUS rule uh, with an eye on the renewable fuel standard and the and the energy policy of the country. Um, is Congress keeping an eye on that agency? We're keeping a very close eye on the agency. In fact, I'm the ranking member of the Oversight and Reform Committee Subcommittee on Energy which has oversight jurisdiction over the EPA uh, and oversight jurisdiction over the Department of Interior and Agriculture and everything else. So we will keep a very close eye on Wheeler. I think he started off well. Uh, Wheeler has uh, stayed under the radar. He's, he's hunkered down doing his job. He's communicating with those of us in Congress that he needs to communicate with. So I feel like we're on the right track because the EPA has, in my opinion, created as much damage to the private sector as any agency in, in government. And Wheeler realizes that he's trying to protect the environment and call out the bad actors while still staying out of the way of the private sector to where we can grow the economy. And energy is a big part of our economy, even in Kentucky. I feel like uh, Wheeler's doing a good job and, uh, and you know, he's at least convince me that he's with us on the renewable fuel standard. Uh, I realize that you're still a farmer. You have cattle in your operation. And one of the big issues with regard to the livestock industry are these alternative protein sources that are being discussed now and right. that technology is advancing. Does government watch that? Uh, does Congress step in? How do you address this? I think it needs to be addressed, and that's something that uh, I'm going to talk to Chairman Peterson about. I'm going to talk to Elijah Cummins and Jim Jordan, who are the 
chair and ranking member of the oversight committee is something we need to look into. I have great concern about that, not just because I'm a cattle farmer, but that's certainly something that needs to be tested and researched before it goes on the mainstream. So I think that's a great item for the Agriculture Committee and the Oversight Reform Committee. Congressman Comer, it's a busy season, and we want to thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule uh, to be with us here on Open Mic. He is Open Mic, and you get the last word today. Well, I appreciate you, Jeff, and the great coverage you give for agriculture. Hopefully, agriculture will be a, a bright, shining star in this Congress. I think we've got uh, you know, a, a good bipartisan group that, that want to help family farmers, and we'll, we'll see if we can pass policy that helps farmers and kill policy that would hold agriculture back. And we'll know in, in two years what kind of success or failure we've had. Our thanks to Kentucky 1st District Representative James Comer, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Syngenta. Syngenta Products and Services, helping farmers increase their return on investment. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Dowling.